Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As you know, Wittenberg to Westphalia is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. This month, I would like to call your attention to Map Corner, a show about maps. It's hosted by our own Royfield Brown and by Claire Asbury. As you may be aware, I sort of make maps for a living, or at least I work with geographic data, so this show is particularly fun for me. If you like maps, give it a listen. If you don't like maps, I don't know what you're doing with your life, but okay, you do you. Anyway, link in the show notes. Onward we go. Quick piece of housekeeping. If there is a Richard A. out there who donated recently, Something weird may have happened with your donation in Patreon, so you might want to get in touch to just clarify what's going on. Anyway, onwards. As you are likely aware, freedom isn't free, and neither is this podcast. And so, we must give honor and praise to those who put their li—well, their money on the line to, in order to ensure that this show has a glorious future for us all. This month... We have a donor, and we have several patrons, and they are all worthy of our thanks. First up, we have an individual who said he didn't need a snarky regnal name because his own name was already cool enough as it was. I will insist on ennobling this person, and so I present to you all Sir Maximilian Ferris. Sir Maximilian Ferris, that is indeed an awesome name. Thank you very much. Moving on to patrons. Past patron Duchess Ellen the Pipe Wrench has increased her gifts to the realm, and so I have increased her title to Duchess Ellen the Pipe Wrench, whose might spans the kingdom's plumbing. Duchess Ellen the Pipe Wrench, thanks very much. Up next, we have someone whose name I am probably pronouncing this wrong, and if so, I apologize. Get in touch, and I will correct it next time, but... Kenneth's contributions to the kingdom have earned him the title of Jarl Kenneth, cleanser of the royal fans. Alexander has been brought to the rank of Duke, and will henceforward be known as Duke Alexander, squeezer of the royal widows, orphans, and other wards. David has been raised to the level of Viscount, and shall be known as Viscount David, the accounts manager beyond reproach. His Holiness Michael shall be known from this day to several future days as Bishop Michael Lightfoot, crosser of the royal tulips. Up next we have Claire, whose purity and spiritual devotion to this show has earned her the status of Abbess Claire, Flayer of the Villages. Thank you very much, Claire, for your many services. Then we have Helen, who shall be known henceforward as Duchess Helen, the Miraculous Seamstress. 
Maybe Duchess Helen can do something about those poor villagers. Next up, we have someone named Earl, who shall be known henceforward as Count Earl, duster of the northwest corner of the second largest assembly room in the royal palace, part-time. And finally, we have Lawrence, who shall be known far and wide throughout the kingdom as Sir Lawrence, chair-sitter. Thank you to all of the donors and patrons from this past month. Your donations are graciously received, and they, of course, help me pay Andrew and pay for my time, which is very important because, you know, it helps me with electric costs and the mortgage and all that stuff. So thank you all very much for your donations. And if you would like to help the podcast out, head over to Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com and go to the support page. It's worth checking out the website anyway. I actually just did kind of a big facelift on some of the pages on the website to reflect some changes to the Patreon levels and things like that. I updated the About page, so uh, go check it out. It's fun. If you do not have money to contribute to the podcast, listening is very nice. Feel free to get in touch. Your encouragement is always appreciated. And I should say, I've heard from a bunch of people this month, and it's this has been a hard month uh, with you know, school being out and things like that, but still being under pandemic conditions. So I I really appreciated the feedback and just thanks to everybody who got in touch. And last, but certainly not least, putting a written review and rating on the podcatcher of your choice is a worthy and beloved sacrifice to the algorithm gods that control our fates. So with that, let us go on with the show. If little improvement was to be expected from such great proprietors, still less was to be hoped for from those who occupied the land under them. In the ancient state of Europe, the occupiers of land were all tenants at will. They were all, or almost all, slaves. But their slavery was of a milder kind than that known among the ancient Greeks and Romans, or even in our West Indian colonies. They were supposed to belong more directly to the land than to their master. They could, therefore, be sold with it, but not separately. They could marry, provided it was with the consent of their master, and he could not afterwards dissolve the marriage by selling the man and wife to different persons. If he maimed or murdered any of them, he was liable to some penalty, though generally but to a small one. They were not, however, capable of acquiring property. Whatever they acquired was acquired to their master, and he could take it from them at pleasure. Whatever cultivation and improvement could be carried on by means of such slaves was properly carried on by their master. It was as his expense. The seed, the cattle, and the instruments of husbandry were all his. It was for his benefit. Such slaves could acquire nothing but their daily maintenance. It was properly the proprietor himself, therefore, that in this case occupied his own lands and cultivated them by his own bondsmen. This species of slavery still subsists in Russia. Poland, Hungary, Bohemia, Moravia, and other parts of Germany. It is only in the western and southwestern provinces of Europe that it has gradually been abolished altogether. But if great improvements are seldom to be expected from great proprietors, they are least of all to be expected when they employ slaves for their workmen. The experience of all ages and nations, I believe, demonstrates that the work done by slaves, though it appears to cost only their maintenance, is in the end the dearest of any. A person who can acquire no property can have no other interest but to eat as much and to labor as little as possible. Whatever work he does beyond what is sufficient to purchase his own maintenance can be squeezed out of him by violence only, 
and not by any interest of his own. In ancient Italy, how much of the cultivation of corn degenerated, how unprofitable became to the master when it fell under the management of slaves, is remarked both by Pliny and Columella. In the time of Aristotle, it had not been much better in ancient Greece. Speaking of the ideal republic described in the laws of Plato, to maintain 5,000 idle men, the number of warriors supposedly necessary for its defense, together with their women and servants, would require, he says, a territory of boundless extent and fertility, like the plains of Babylon. Quote from The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, as read by Derek from the Hellenistic Age podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia. This is episode 77, Slavery in the Middle Ages Part 3, Transition. In the last few episodes, we've examined slavery in the Middle Ages initially in terms of the theories of slavery presented in the historiography, and also specifically in terms of the legal and economic underpinnings of the practice. Having laid that groundwork, we know that, as late antiquity ended, there were several different kinds of ways that slave owners used slaves to make profits. But all of these ways relied, to a greater or lesser extent, on the framework of the empire itself. There was an ideological justification in terms of the idea that slaves did not deserve freedom for some reason, and there were economic conditions of a politically stable society that was able to enforce the rule of law, thus allowing the laws that kept slaves in bondage to be kept in place with a minimal expenditure of resources by the owner. This, in turn, allowed the slave system to produce goods for sale in the empire's complex trading network, without which none of this would happen. Then, it all died. The economic network fell apart, the ideological system shifted, etc., etc., etc. Today, we will begin examining the changes that took place in the slavery system of the former Western Roman Empire, a set of processes that would ultimately be resolved as Europe entered the High Middle Ages, and which would underpin the way most people lived in Europe up until the early modern period, and indeed, even after. I should just quickly note here that, once again, I am deeply indebted to Dr. Alice Rio's book, Slavery After Rome, for the information in this episode. We may be moving on to a new source next episode, but we will see how far we get today. The first change to address is ideological. This is the place where many traditional historians located the credit for the transition of slavery into serfdom. The traditional story was that the adoption of Christianity by the Roman Empire made slave owners feel bad about slavery, and so they freed their slaves for the benefit of their soul. But not that free, and the people who came after them still had to have people do things for them, because God forbid rich people do work. And so they found ways to claw back a kind of halfway status between slavery and freedom that became serfdom. My take, which is heavily informed by Dr. Rio's take, on these changes to ideology is a bit more nuanced. But the ideology is important to the story. It is true that in most ways of looking at Christianity, it's not a huge fan of slavery, at least in comparison to earlier Roman ideology. After all, in the Bible, Jesus calls for sympathy for poor people, and he hangs out with slaves and freedmen all the time. In contrast to the Roman view that slavery was sign of a moral defect, Christianity seemed to view these people as redeemable. In general, Christianity argued that slavery was not the slave's fault. 
The rationale depended on the theologian and the time, and there were many takes on this. And the rationale also differed by the way the person was enslaved. Like, you didn't really find any Christian theologians in the Middle Ages who had a problem with penal servitude. But just to give two examples, one major current of thought was that people who were slaves were being allowed by God to do penance, you know, in this life so that they would be guaranteed a place in heaven in the next life. Blessed are the meek and all that. On a more practical level, many theologians just observed that a poor person who was starving due to a wider famine could hardly be to blame for taking a way out that saved their family from death. And someone who was taken prisoner in war could, you know, hardly be faulted under Christian theology for not effectively committing suicide by refusing to remain a slave. This created a bit of an awkward situation for the wealthy, because if slaves are good, actually, then what does that say about slaveholders who spend all their days going around beating slaves and starving them and just generally not treating them as equals in the eyes of God, and who also, incidentally, pay priests' salaries? The classic case of getting out of this awkwardness that Rio cites, and I'll just use it too because it's convenient, comes from Charles the Bald's Edict of Petrus, about which I think we need to have a podcast footnote. Uh, also, I may have pronounced that horribly. Sorry. Edict of Petrus? Whatever. Podcast footnote. The edict is an interesting case. The legal code had a breathtaking ambition in that it was extremely wide-ranging, with a comprehensiveness that even Charlemagne hadn't really attempted. And it also did this while citing precedent, chapter and verse, from earlier legal codes to justify every little thing that it was saying as not an entirely new invention, but just a, a compilation, a setting things to right. This is the way things were supposed to be interpreted before things all got muddled in the past. That kind of thing. It's very Middle Ages. Of course, this involved a lot of picking and choosing to get the outcomes that Charles wanted to be considered the right interpretation. This was hardly a passive compilation of existing precedent. Despite couching itself in older laws, it was what we might call a activist interpretation of precedent. As a key example for us, there were many available legal precedents available to Charles about slavery, which we've talked about previously, that were available to him from Theodosius's laws on back. But instead, Charles chose to ignore them and cited scripture as precedent as we will see in a second. The other interesting thing here that we just really need to say uh, is that, as you will no doubt remember, Charles was a useless such-and-such who was in way over his head and ended up stuffed in a pickle barrel that was abandoned in the Alps by his friends due to the unbearable stench of his corpse. We should not therefore view these laws as binding on anyone, or even as representing a precedent that would have been used in your average manorial court. At the same time, similar laws would pop up from here forward in Europe, at least in regards to how these laws viewed slavery. So we can take the edict to show us an evolution taking place in the ideologies of the time, at least in terms of the Frankish court, or what was left of it for the few minutes after it sort of walked Wiley Coyote style over the chasm and then started to drop. End podcast footnote. So what Charles said in the edict was this, and I quote, And if someone says that he does not want to give his money for a free man in a time of famine, or for another necessity, if he cannot keep him as a slave forever, let him heed what the Lord tells him through his apostle, saying, He who has the wealth of the world and sees his brother is in need, and shuts up his heart from him, the love of God dwells not in him. End quote. 
he went on to ban selling such individuals abroad and a few other important provisions. But what all this is to say is that rich people who buy poor people aren't monsters, actually. They're charitable leaders of their community. The ones that refuse to buy poor people in need, those are the real monsters. Sure, this purchase should be temporary until the debt is paid, but rich people are doing society a service by buying humans in debt. They are keeping them from starving, as is the Christian thing to do. And of course, you can't just expect them to give away the money for free. That would be ridiculous. Papa's got to get paid. So, slaves are not morally defective, but slave purchasers are doing society a service by buying them. This was the ideological shift in the Church of the Middle Ages as regards slavery. And it had some implications. While selling yourself into slavery in the Roman Empire was considered so taboo as to be in complete violation of the very spirit of the existence of the laws in Roman society, with the state ultimately condemning both parties to such a deal, in the early Middle Ages, all that heat was off. The seller was no longer some sort of outcast, they had just fallen on hard times. And the buyer was not potentially violating the most basic norms of human society, now they were a charitable leader of their community. The result, whether intentional or not, was that the sale of freedom became a tradable commodity in the Frankish parts of Europe, and the language of poverty and social benevolence became part of the legal boilerplate. In almost every Frankish contract of this kind, the person selling their freedom, no matter the substance of the contract, is usually listed as selling their freedom to avoid starvation. Even if the deal is like, to avoid starvation, I sell you my freedom, and in return, I will give you one crumpet a year. While undoubtedly many were genuinely in that situation of facing critical hunger, given what we've talked about with agriculture in the past, the ubiquity of this language suggests that it was a trope. Charles bending over backwards to put this in his legal code does not suggest to me that he invented this himself, but rather that the ideology of the Frankish aristocracy had already moved in this direction, and Charles was finding ways to justify something that most people would have approved of anyway, at least most rich people. Poor people's opinions tended not to get cited in these situations. Dr. Rio discusses the change at some length, but I think in some ways she doesn't emphasize the importance of it enough for my taste, and, you know, that matters because I, I have a podcast. Given that Frankish legal codes would, to a greater or lesser degree, come to underpin the legal systems of almost all of Europe, this is important on its own. But as we've discussed in the past, just because something is in the law code doesn't mean people actually listen to it. More important is the evidence that we see in various compilations of real legal cases used as guides to precedent for early medieval scholars. In these documents, what we see is an amazing diversity of different kinds of agreements entered into between sellers and buyers. Which is to say, all those documents in which the legal boilerplate of starvation and charity is seen, and their legal cases that grow up around them, show us that legal code was not some fiction created by Charles out of whole cloth. Rather, it reflects a change in the ideological assumptions of society, and what this led to was a whole lot of social creativity of a very weird kind. The implications of making freedom a tradable commodity in the absence of strong regulations should probably be sort of what you'd expect to anyone familiar with the tendencies of any trading market. It became more common than it had been previously, because suddenly it was legal, and a bewildering array of types of deals were reached with increasing levels of abstraction and complexity. Inevitably, fractions of a freedom were sold, sometimes with portions of a person's freedom sold to different lords, for benefits great and small. 
To understand what was going on here, we need to keep in mind the incentives, social conditions, and power structures of the sellers and buyers in these situations. In terms of incentives, the lords wanted to make money, albeit this is the context of the Middle Ages, and money can be taken loosely to represent any sort of surplus resources skimmed away from the peasants and into the coffers of the lords. The peasants had a variety of needs, from basic survival to legal protection from their neighbors. Contrary to what we might think, the Middle Ages was an extremely litigious age, albeit that physical force was also sometimes used. Individual peasant families might need physical protection from other lords, but they also might need physical protection from other peasants. They also might need assistance in lawsuits, or protection from someone else's lawsuit. In all cases, the opposing force was just as likely to be another peasant as it was to be another lord. In terms of social conditions, we should remember that everyone is simultaneously very fixed in the land, so that there is relatively little danger of flight, but, I mean, it happened, while also being extremely tied in to powerful social networks that provided a large capacity for implicit resistance. The poor, in other words, no longer could maybe run away as easily, and they couldn't appeal decisions to a higher authority, but by that same token, the lords could not impose things on people in their territory by brute force alone because they no longer had the backup of a state. They also no longer had elaborate bureaucracies to manage their estates. In short, if the workers on their estates collectively decided to just ignore the lord, the lord had to either kill them or accept it, and if the goal was to make the estates productive, negotiation was preferable. So while the lord had a massive amount of power compared to any one peasant, the peasants had power too. So the deals reached are clearly the result of some kind of negotiation. And of course, this should just be said that any kind of negotiation along these lines is a complete departure from what would have been the case in the Roman Empire. In terms of power structures, we have discussed at length in this show how different classes were not monolithic, and the peasant village society which was emerging was no different. People had greater and lesser levels of economic power, popularity, and prestige. Freedom status was a major part of a person's prestige, and thus social standing. It had practical legal implications as well, but increasingly these could be overcome easily with the right combination of friends and money. As, uh, for example, a slave who was a trained blacksmith might lack in social status in some ways, but would be able to command great economic resources, and would be seen as having a prestigious job within a village community. Lords had similar concerns, and had similar networks of social ties that they needed to manage. Freeing people for the good of their soul, in order to be seen as more pious, was part of the picture, to be sure, but there was often more to it than that. If a lord freed a slave who was a skilled blacksmith, that blacksmith could be sent to find a place of employment in the court of another lord. This would serve to create social ties between the lords, since freedmen would be expected to always have good feelings towards the person who freed them, while also having some loyalty to the person who was paying them. This would create a, if you want, a diplomatic tie from between distant courts. So bringing people in and out of slavery served a number of purposes for the lords in terms of social hierarchy that are worth keeping in mind. Though in general the point was to make money and be on top of the local heap, slaves could also help the lords in their attempts to gain prestige and build alliance networks with other lords. Dr. Rio is quick to point out that the types of arrangements between lords and enslaved people varied greatly by time and place. Notably, Ireland was never part of the Frankish legal system, at least not before the Norman Conquest, and while their legal code contains a wide variety of gradations of unfreedom, the situation there springs from a different starting place than the social systems on the continent. You know what, let's make this a podcast footnote. Let's just address how things worked in Ireland, because I won't really have time to come back to it. 
The key concern in Ireland was in finding ways to knit together the clan as a social and productive entity. People who had proved themselves to be of value to the clan could be granted statuses that brought them more into the household, or people who annoyed people could be sort of pushed out of the household. There were also gradations of status that recognized blood ties between a more important person and someone who may have ended up as a slave for whatever reason. The system was as complex, if not more so, than the mainland legal systems, and scholars of Irish history will forgive me if I've misunderstood parts of this. My statements here are based on short discussions of it in Dr. Rio's book, and I did go and make an attempt to try and read some of the primary sources, but you'll remember from that intro quote that I did with Sam Hume, I mostly just came away confused, and um, Sam, who's from that part of the world, if not Ireland specifically, was as equally confused as myself, and he's a PhD candidate. Anyway, end podcast footnote. <laughs> Other places where Rio points out differences are in Byzantine or Islamic-dominated places. In these areas, just to make it short, slavery basically continued under the Roman ideological settlement as if nothing had happened, and so they are only worth mentioning because this includes southern Italy and Spain, places that will be important when we finish up this series of episodes. Visigothic Spain and Lombard Italy also retained strong elements of Roman precedent, but still faced the context of crumbling ideological and physical infrastructures. In Italy, you see a multiplication of four or five statuses that were somewhere between slave and free, something that was explicitly banned in Roman legal doctrine. In Spain, the legal code rigidly stuck to Roman precedents, while other documents from the area indicate that things like self-sales and debt slavery were becoming more and more common on the ground in the real world. So they maintained this legal fiction that everyone was ignoring. In some ways, similar things were happening in Francia, it's just that the concept of a centralized law code had sort of become laughable. Before we move on from these areas, it's just important to note that in Visigothic Spain and in Islamic territories, penal enslavement became a huge source of slaves in a way it was not in other parts of Europe or even in the Roman Empire. Stories and legal evidence indicate that the threat of penal servitude in Francia was used as a stick to sort of threaten relatives into helping move the court to mercy. Which is to say, having a family member enslaved was seen as a huge loss of prestige, and so social networks would pay the amount of money required to purchase the individual's freedom, or at least plead their case. They could then be expected to vouch for that person's good behavior in the future, since they all had a probably financial stake in keeping their relative or friend on the straight and narrow because they didn't want to lose their investment. This, of course, left people who had no friends or relatives or were very, very poor on the outside of the system, which is something we'll get back to in a minute. But just to say quickly, in Spain, this could be possible sometimes, as we discussed in our Outside Looking In series. But for many crimes, at least in terms of the letter of the law code, this was explicitly banned. Like the law code said, in terms of these crimes, Purchasing your relative out of that slavery is illegal. That person is being enslaved and they're getting shipped somewhere else. The idea of slavery was, in this case, not just a threat to scare people. It was thought of as a deserved punishment. It was seen as being more merciful than a death sentence, while still having similar effects. Essentially, the person is socially dead. But it was felt that it was maybe unseemly to, say, kill women in the marketplace. On the other hand, there is a strong sexual component to the enslavement of women. And so there is also elements of what we might call a dark poetic justice or things along those lines to some of these crimes that 
you know, of course, is awful and gross. But it is in Francia where we see the best documented and most creative proliferation of experiments in unfreedom, at least given the sources we have now. These changes fit into two broad categories, manumissions and self-sale contracts. We will deal with these each in turn. We've touched in several previous episodes on the many aspects of manumission as it related to the creation of unfree type statuses. Just to say quickly, manumission is the act of freeing a slave. As I've said before, this was once seen as the main source of eventual serfs by earlier historians. While this is no longer seen as the main source of serfs, for reasons we discussed previously, no one will deny that this was maybe a source of people with confused statuses between free and unfree. These come in the forms of what I guess we might call manumission contracts, where a former owner lays out the terms under which the manumission is taking place. We see more evidence of these in the form of legal records in which the people who were freed, or their children, have some sort of dispute with the descendants of those who freed them over the terms of the deal. The terms entered into could be extremely light, as we discussed in the previous episode, and often the manumissions came with the land that the peasant family was already working on, which, for the time, is a pretty generous deal. In other cases, the manumission basically froze their required activities at a certain level. So, if a farmhand was getting old, the slave owner might require that they only help move hay from then on, but otherwise grant them their freedom from all other duties. However, their descendants might be stuck with that status forever. And of course, there are deals that are more familiar kinds of serfdom, where a person is freed, but has to return to do labor for the owner's farm three days out of the week, or something like that, or give half their crop. We see deals like this both for secular and religious masters, but almost always the documents were preserved by a religious institution, which is something we should take with a grain of salt. Sometimes this was because churches were used as document repositories in a time when they were seen as the only trustworthy long-term institutions, but usually it was because the church would later inherit the status of owner. This was also often intentional, as the church was often seen as a trustworthy pair of hands to leave a freedman in. The Lord's descendants might try and claw the deal back. Presumably the church would be a neutral third party, and for their trouble, their wards would do some work for them. And over time, this became an important revenue stream that the church would seem to wring every last drachma out of. But the idea in terms of the person who was doing the manumitting was they freed the slave and then transferred the deal over to the church, and then hopefully the church would just maintain the dependent party's freedom forever. This period of sort of the 1000 to 1100, that kind of era, this period is full of forgeries in general. And so, as you would expect, some of these forgeries involve the priests or abbeys having legal rights over individuals that the said individual might have disagreed with, but the church just produces this document and says, oh, Charlemagne signed this, or whatever. But some of the forgeries are downright weird in a fairly entertaining way, and so I'm sure you'll forgive me for a little bit of a tangent. In one instance, the Bodmin Gospels, the priests of Bodmin in Cornwall had taken to listing manumitted people with witnesses in the margins of their copies of the Gospels. Undoubtedly, this helped ensure that the deal had an extra sense of legitimacy and magical unbreakability. The priests also took to saying who was the spiritual beneficiary of the act, a concept that is itself fairly interesting given what we're going to be talking about in a few years. Say, if you were worried about the soul of your dead relative, and you thought that freeing a slave was a good thing to do, you could go to the priests and free some slaves, and then have them dedicate the spiritual benefits of your deed to your dead relative. 
sort of like saying a prayer for someone, except with freedom. This is theologically interesting, but that discussion's for another time. Suffice it to say that in some parts of Britain, it was possible to dedicate the spiritual benefits of manumission to someone other than the person who actually did the manumitting. This is already a little wild, as we're talking about priests using the magic of a Bible to help ensure the security of a manumission deal, and then donating the spiritual bonus points to someone who was not even there. But then the priests took these strange things and kind of turned them up to 11. They started listing people as witnesses and spiritual beneficiaries who had a lot of political importance. Like, say, the King of England or the Queen or certain dukes. They did this for all the kings, in fact, from Edmund to Ethelred, which Dr. Rio says is 15 kings in a row. You might want to go check with the History of Britain podcast to see if that's real, but uh, I didn't count. But I'm going to take her word for it, because she's a doctor. Now, Bodmin may be a very nice place to visit. Cornwall, I hear, is beautiful, but it is a bit out of the way for most English kings who had, you know, war stuff to do. In fact, we are very sure that most or all of these people did not actually travel down there at the times they are listed as being there. So basically, the priests have created a fraudulent document in a Bible where they claim random important people came to their abbey to witness a manumission. This would be sort of like if I renewed my registration at the DMV, and the DMV tried to say the processing agent was Taylor Swift. Or like Lil Nas X. The kids still listen to Lil Nas X, right? Let's go with him, Lil Nas X, yeah. So he's the witnessing agent, because no one would want to screw with document witnessed by by him. The interesting part of this, beyond the fact that priestly shenanigans are always kind of fun, is that it really begs the question, what on earth did the priests hope to gain by this forgery? This is always a question with forgeries. Basically, it's two things we already mentioned. On the one hand, there's always a worry that someone would try and break out of these deals at some point, and if you put down the king as a witness or a spiritual beneficiary, that may make someone think twice about breaking a contract that apparently Lil Nas X himself has signed. Uh, no one wants to bring in that kind of heat. That guy killed Satan. On the other hand, we go back to the incentives of the nobility. The upper echelons of Bowdoin wanted to make it seem like their abbey was important and well-connected, and so they tried to put important people down in their book so it looked like they were more important than they actually were. Ah, yes, welcome to our abbey. Please sign the guest book right next to the contract that was witnessed by our friend, King Ethelred. Yes, he visits all the time. Thanks for your donation. Do remember to come back often. You never know who else might be visiting. At the same time, throwing spiritual benefits towards the great and famous of the kingdom was also a great way to give those figures a nice gift that might buy their favor, but which cost the priests, you know, nothing real. And hey, if the king sees himself as a spiritual beneficiary in a legal document, maybe he won't look at that document too hard. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that fun little tangent. So much for manumissions. On to self-sale documents. And by self-sale documents, I'm going to be including slavery for debt and penal servitude, given the way that the French penal system worked. This is where we reach the heart of the matter. The largest single chunk of Dr. Rio's book is devoted to giving examples of different deals that were worked out and the various reasons. I'm going to do this all a bit of a disservice and try to summarize some major themes here, but it is sort of, you know, it's just a podcast episode. The first thing to say is that debt slavery, self-sale, and penal servitude all kind of blended together in this period. 
under the Carolingian legal system, the expectation that relatives would buy a convicted person out of slavery became a more and more official part of the system, as we discussed. This meant that the person was essentially only enslaved until the fine was paid off, or until a period of work was done commensurate with that fine. When combined with major church injunctions, in Francia specifically, against selling Christians to foreign buyers, the impact of penal enslavement changed radically. Essentially, it became a temporary state. You weren't being enslaved forever, you were being enslaved until they paid off your debt. And theoretically, once the fine was paid, the person returned to a free status. No harm, no foul. This varied by social class, of course. You're never going to see a duke in penal servitude. The point, however, is that this seems to have had blowback effects on the way people conceptualize debt slavery and self-sale. When combined with the conceptual shift of slavery going from a profound moral veiling combined with a social death, to being a contractual reaction to poverty, all slavery took on characteristics of a kind of temporary financial transaction rather than the social death that had characterized it in other times and places. Once these shifts took place, the examples of self-sale deals entered into become mind-boggling, and increasingly people were taking the sale of their freedom very lightly. There are a variety of spectrums I could use to describe these deals, but let me go with this. On the one hand, you have a poor person with no friends who is enslaved due to a crime they committed. They have very little agency in the situation. Their contract, as it were, was usually given to or bought from the court by a local noble family, and the person would work for them until the debt was paid. In this situation, we might very much expect the enslaved person to be doing things that we would expect slaves to be doing. Domestic housework or farm work for no pay, and with the threat of violence if they failed to comply properly. However, all parties to this situation knew that it was a temporary state, and that probably modified behavior somewhat. For the owner, it might be important to use the situation to build ties with someone who would eventually return to a free status in the community. And for the slave, the temporary nature of the situation would encourage them to accept it, not try to run away or resist. It could potentially be that they would build a tie to an important local noble person that they could use to their advantage when they were freed. In any case, if they did resist or try and run away, their temporary slave status could become permanent. That was another part of this legal framework. On the other end of the spectrum, we have a number of examples of people, often widows, who seem to be of good social standing and who have plentiful resources, but who place themselves in an unfree status as regards a patron in order to attain that person's protection. So a widow might need help with a legal case, and she might enter into a legal arrangement with a local abbey to get legal advice and protection in lawsuits. Given the sort of intellectual conditions of the time, Religious institutions were often the closest thing that most people had to a lawyer. Interestingly, the idea of self-sale slavery agreements was the closest thing to our modern idea of a contract at the time. The terms of these agreements would basically be that everyone in the society had to recognize that the slave was the property and therefore under the protection of the owner. In return, the so-called slave would give the so-called owner a reasonably small sum of money every year until the need for protection had passed. In this case, the widow would continue to go about her life as usual and would not actually do any work for the abbey beyond sending them a stipend to symbolize their relationship. There's an interesting issue here. Along with the idea of selling freedom becoming widely accepted, let's just put a pin in that, honestly, there seems to be a fairly limited scope for paid work, or at least the concept of being paid for work had come to be seen as a thing done only by those of lesser status, notably slaves. 
The wealthy widow had the money to pay for legal advice and protection, but the abbey was hardly some kind of mercenary institution out there to sell their services to the highest bidder. Even though in practical reality it was the same, the fact that the widow was becoming the servant of the abbey and the abbey was providing the services out of charity for a person in need helped to maintain the social nicety of the abbey as a religious institution, and thus on a higher plane from pedestrian work duties. The conversation we had a couple episodes back in terms of the way etymologies changed such that many words that had originally implied slavery became words for normal work, often even honorable work that a good, honest, middle-class person does, probably has its roots here, which is an interesting thing that I haven't seen anyone else explore, but, you know, probably someone has. In any case, most people were between these two extremes. But you can see how the changing conceptions of slavery had created a lot of room for societal creativity. In the context where the lords simply did not have the course of power they held in earlier times, it became important for them to find an arrangement with their workers that made it so those workers would stay on the state voluntarily and even do work voluntarily, even if grudgingly so. Given the ideological changes and the changing attitude of Frankish society to sales of slaves abroad, this meant that slaves were gradually no longer being seen simply as chattel. They were a part of the social fabric of the estate. In this situation, the slaves had a power that had to be recognized in negotiations. It wasn't a lot of power, and it very much depended on whether a person was popular, or had a big family, or had skills that might be useful, or had some kind of claim to a lot of money or land. But these were suddenly all factors. In the Roman Empire, if you were a slave and you owned anything, legally belongs to the slave owner. If you had a skill, it meant you had a higher buying price, but you never saw that money. Maybe it would make sense to have you use that skill, which would mean that you got to live in slightly better conditions, but still. Now the slave and the owner were both part of the conversation. Now, I referenced this earlier, but this did mean that some particularly daring individuals could get away with some really wild arrangements. It is not all uncommon to find evidence of a person selling half their freedom, which is to say, in practical reality, that they sell their time, and during a certain set of hours they can be treated like a slave, but not during the other hours. Some individuals did this for multiple owners, and, as I have mentioned in previous episodes, many of these arrangements came in the form of what we might call structured settlements. Yes, I will be your slave, but you have to provide food and clothing. Many of these agreements were spelled out in fascinatingly excruciating detail, and as such, provide some of the best evidence we have of how people lived, worked, and ate in those time periods. But the kinds of things that would be spelled out would be like the number of hens that were expected to be fed to the workers per week, the amount of beer and wine per meal, the yard's fabric provided for clothing, etc., etc., ad infinitum. On the other hand, we should not delude ourselves that this was, in most cases, a civilized conversation between equals over the medieval equivalent of a person's benefits package. The Lord had coercive power available. It was not enough to impose their will through brute force alone, but there was also no higher political authority there to enforce deals or protect a peasant from a Lord's army. At the end of the day, if the Lord wanted to make you enter an arrangement, it was possible to coerce you into doing it, and the agreement would be recognized in court because the court was either run by the Lord or by other Lords who did the same things. So, say, if you owned a large farm that the Lord wanted to incorporate into his estate and your family was out there on your own, well, that's a nice farm. It would be a shame if anything were to happen to it. But as we saw, the Lords could only push this so far. The goal was to get that farm into the estate, and it was no good to the Lord if there was no one working it. And so the Lord would offer that kind of peasant better terms than they would offer a peasant with a small farm or no farm. 
And once the farmer was in the village with the other peasants, they might find some actual protection from the communal character of the village. Sure, the lord knew where everyone was and would make it easier to tax them, but all of a sudden there was a lot of physically fit, somewhat angry people together in one place, a place that was easier to defend with so many eyes working together. This brings us back to a question asked by Mark Bloch all those years ago. In this society, where unfreedom had ceased to be a kind of social death, and where free people were often no better off than unfree people, what was the point of the status? Yes, it had some practical drawbacks, as lords got more say about who you could and could not marry, and there were maybe more burdensome labor obligations, but everyone was paying the lord something at this point. What value did this piece of identity status have? Bloch's answer was that this was mere silly sentiment of a ignorant rural population, but Rio goes a bit further. Rio argues that it was emphasized by the lords. It gave them one more thing to negotiate for in the deals they were working over with the peasants, but it also represented a way to break up the unified front of the peasant village communes. By getting people to worry about this identity status and keep them negotiating their arrangements individually rather than collectively, it kept the peasants divided, and it made it so they would never be equal parties in the negotiations. This would work for many years, but in the 1100s and the 1200s, Changes were in the air that would once again change the terms of this entire conversation, and finally create the fully codified serfdom status that we know and love from our history books. But that is for next episode. Today, I think we definitely need a more extensive summary than usual to wrap this all up, because this could be confusing. In earlier episodes, we discussed how changing conditions at the end of antiquity were pushing poor farmers down while raising slaves up. In effect, Today we discussed what happens when they collided. It was thought for many years that the poor farmers became the free peasants of later years, while the slaves became the serfs. But the evidence shows many different processes at work. On the one hand, we have a wide variety of arrangements for freed slaves, and these arrangements sometimes involve the freedmen genuinely being granted total freedom, often for the purposes that suited the lord's social status needs. In other instances, the freedmen were put into situations where they still owed their former owners some kind of service, and eventually the status became hereditary via a wide spread of statuses. On the other hand, the chaos of Europe created conditions that made many free peasants, willingly or unwillingly, enter into deals with lords where their freedom status was traded for some kind of good or service. Again, this manifested as a chaotic array of individual deals, some of which became hereditary though they were often renegotiated regularly. This was permitted by, or possibly permitted, a change in the ideological underpinning of slavery. Partially abetted by Christianity, slaves were no longer seen as morally defective, just unfortunate souls fallen on hard times. Slave owners were recast as generous patrons, keeping their neighbors from starving to death. A key part of this shift was that it was no longer allowed to sell slaves abroad with slavery no longer representing a social death, but often becoming a temporary result of debt or minor crimes, the stigma of slavery gradually fell away to a certain extent, and a person's legal status as free or unfree became a tradable commodity, a part of wider negotiations between individual lords and individual peasants, with the resulting deals having as much to do with the peasants' popularity, wealth, skills, and family as it had to do with heredity. This was also done in a context of widespread illiteracy on all sides of these negotiated processes. Needless to say, the result was a total legal chaos. In the 1200s, as literacy picked up and Europe's first post-Roman legal scholars started to emerge from the new universities of Boulogne, Naples, and Paris, 
These classically trained men took one look at the legal arrangements of the time and began screaming, and did not stop for several centuries, which was quite alarming if technically untrue. At the same time, a new class of lords descended from hard-nosed urban merchants emerged and began buying up land in the countryside to celebrate their new noble status. They had a similar reaction to the legal situation they, they found. It was not as neat and tidy as the trade deals that they were used to. Something would need to be done to clean up this mess. We will find out what they did next time as we wrap up this series on slavery, here on Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. Track record so clean, they couldn't wait to just bash me. I must be getting too flashy. Y'all shouldn't have let the world gas me. It's too late, cause I'm here to stay, and these girls know that I'm nasty. I sent it back to her boyfriend with my handprint on her ass cheek. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.